welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Here, As I said a second ago, my name is Scott, and I serve here on the team as our parish pastor. And we really don't take it for granted that some of you have chosen to take a weekend that's especially warm and mild to come and join us here at church, offering your time and your attention to community and to each other. So thank you for participating in worship and coming to the table and for giving your kindness and your welcome to one another so freely. It's so wonderful. Now, some of you may already know this, but today is important. And yes, it's because we're going to finish this conversation about hospitality. We've been having more on that in a second. And no, it's not because the Grey Cup's happening here in Calgary today, because nobody really pays attention to the CFL, right? Is that true? Okay, (laughs) mixed response. That's all right. I'm not trying to offend anybody. Today is actually significant because it's actually the last day of Christian calendar. And each year, in this tradition that goes back hundreds of years, many Christian traditions mark the passing of time with feasts and fasting and remembrance. And you can find a brief description of this practice in our journal on page 16. And so last November, we began the church year with our observance of Advent. And through each season, we told again the story of redemption, a story that we see most clearly in Jesus. And along the way, as poet Malcolm Geith notes, we live with hints and guesses, turning the wheel of each returning year, and in between our failures and successes, we sometimes glimpse the love that casts out fear. Tracing the tracks of grace, sounding the seasons that lead at last through time to endless glory. Which, being a little bit poetic, it might not be your thing, but guess what? The church calendar does lead us on a bit of a repeating track, where year by year we come again to the biggest ideas and images of our faith. And regardless of what's transpired, we mark time by acknowledging that the story of our lives isn't actually bound by time. That despite the feeling that we never seem to have enough time or that our time isn't our own sometimes, coming back to the markers of Christian feast and celebration reminds us that grace isn't bound by our markers or how well we can grasp it or measure it, but the fact that it has been and is and will be always with us. And that the tales of God's great goodness continue to echo in our time and in our ordinary lives, which, given that this is the last Sunday of ordinary time in the calendar, that seems like the right thing to make note of. As too is the fact that these past few weeks, we've been in this series about making room, thinking about this practice of everyday hospitality and taking up the Gospel of Luke as our textbook, investigating some familiar stories for the unfamiliar questions that they invite us to ask ourselves. In the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus' house, realizing that Jesus' way of being in the world is one of welcome, and that the fact that it's always initiated by the divine, always making space for people to be their true selves. In the story of Jesus and the paralyzed man, 
brought by his friends, we recognize that good hosting requires a commitment to making use of the tension and the conflict that's all around us in our world. And then last week, in the story of Jesus and a woman in a Pharisee's home, Bobby imaged Jesus as inviting us to stretch beyond the conventional forms of hospitality, which are fine in their own right, and to take the next radical step towards each other in vulnerability bringing to bear what theologian Letty Russell calls riotous difference. And I love that turn of phrase. And by this, Russell refers to the quality of how our unique and separate and often divergent ways of being in the world, how these things are actually God's gift to the world. The rush of creative force meant to spark bright and luminous wonder as we live, not the fear and violence that often take hold of us. And that picture of Jesus at dinner, sitting between an uninvited woman and a suspicious religious leader as host in all their difference, that picture is not unlike our series artwork, with a table arranged and surrounded by a group of characters cut out and etched out of different images themselves. And like that image, these gospel texts pull us in and we see Jesus taking the limited conventional images of hospitality in his world. And from around tables and intense conversations and the middle of meals, he invites us to move beyond an understanding of hospitality where we all look alike and where we practice hospitality as being with those who are familiar and similar to us. And we hope you've picked up on the juxtaposition of our words and images the last few weeks. And if not, there's one more angle for you to take a look at today. As we pick up our final text and a conversation about what hitchhiking, dramatic irony, and good guesting have in common, which we will come to in a moment. But first, let's calm our hearts and pray for a moment. Join me now. God to whom all of our hearts are open and all desires are known. We confess that we can sense and know your nearness with us in familiar faces here today, in quiet moments, and in the practice of building community again as we do now. And we ask, come and meet us where we are, lightening the load or the burden that we might be carrying illuminating some question or confusion that we are wrestling with even now, creating space in each of us to hope again and to reach out again. With these moments now, we bless the roads that have brought us. We bless this day as the one that's passing through us now. We bless the light we see, the music we hear, and the broken body that we share that binds us to your great kindness again. For these and so much more we give thanks in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right. So today we are going to pick up another well-known narrative, but one that comes from a very different place in Luke's and Jesus' story. We're going to fast forward past Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his execution, and we pick up on a Sunday morning where in a group of Jesus' followers, there's been a report that a couple of women have gone to Jesus' tomb and found it empty, and that this has been corroborated by some others, and Luke 24 begins this way. 
Now, that same day, two people were going, two followers of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, and their faces fell and were downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked Jesus, are you the only person visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there these days? And Jesus asked, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And I'm going to stop there because there's a couple observations to make here right off the top. First, that clearly we've dropped into the middle of Luke's resurrection narrative, which is the culmination of the entire story. All that Luke has wanted to say comes to bear in his claim that Jesus somehow has come back to life. And that ultimately, resurrection is the newest and most powerful example of how God is at work in the world. But then secondly, we take up again this lens that we've been using the last few weeks, considering how Luke's storytelling points us to how Jesus' way of being in the world provokes us to think about hospitality as a divine attribute. And not just that, but also how our hospitality, or how hospitality is a practice, it's a practice of those who hope to cultivate a life that reveals and reflects God's character. And ultimately, when we take these two observations, they point us toward, and I'm going to put all my cards on the table here, the fact that hospitality, I think, is a practice of resurrection. And we're going to keep coming back to that. Because I see this as the most potent theme in the entire story, and how it's so often hidden in plain sight. I mean, here we have two disciples, two friends of Jesus, leaving Jerusalem in the wake of Passover festival, in which Jesus was condemned to die, and he was publicly executed. And these two are presumably headed home. And at seven miles, they're going to walk the amount of steps that your Fitbit and experts believe will take you beyond the reach of heart disease. So that's good. But basically, this is a two to three hour walk, okay? And they're talking to each other, as the text says. And the verb here implies that this is an engaged conversation. There's some bantering happening, some disputing. They are processing everything that they have seen the last few days. And I love this. The text says that Jesus himself came and walked along with them. And they don't recognize him, which is a bit we'll come back to in a second. It's interesting how right at the end of the story, though, we see that these two return back to Jerusalem after the events of this passage happen, and they tell everybody what has happened to them, and they relate how Jesus joined up with them on the road and how he spoke to them on the road, which is an image of how resurrection comes to us, how moments of hospitality emerge in our lives, how they do so out on the road. Meaning that to practice hospitality and openness to others, it requires a bit of a hitchhiker's guide, I think. And to explain what I mean, just a quick story here. In 1997, a guy named Tony Hawks, not Tony Hawk, famous skateboarder, totally different guy. Tony Hawks hitchhiked his way all around Ireland, which sounds normal enough, right? <laughs> kind of. The catch is, is that he did so with a mini fridge. 
And this idea came to him on an earlier trip to Ireland when he was driving down a road and he saw someone in the countryside just standing there bumming a ride with a full-sized fridge. And his curiosity kind of got the best of him. He thought, this is crazy, but maybe, maybe Ireland's the one place in the world that you could literally stand there and get picked up. So he made a hundred pound bet with a friend that he could get around Ireland with an appliance for luggage. And he went and ironically spent 130 pounds on a mini fridge, so he's already in the hole, and he flies to Ireland. Now, he's written a book about this journey he went on, he's given talks, and there's actually even a film that's been made, if you're interested. The point is that Tony spent almost the entire trip relying on the kindness, if not confused sympathy, of the people who picked him up and offered this to him. And he had to get up each and every day and not know where he was going to end up. And he sometimes would make a plan, but he had to be open to how the means of executing that plan by the end of the day would be very different than he imagined. And even as portions of the country started to hear about him on local radio, and people started to sign his fridge as part of the ritual, and he receives people's unearned trust and open hospitality and generosity, he still didn't really understand what was going on. So on one occasion, a party actually broke out at a local pub. He'd come into town, people kind of were starting to hear about him, and he arrives, people are buying drinks for everyone, people are coming up to him and saying, oh, you're the idiot with the fridge, and good times are being had. And in the middle of this sort of raucous environment, an old man comes across the pub to him and says, I just want to thank you. And he is so confused. He's like, what are you talking about? He said, I, look at all the people's faces. You and your fridge are spreading joy. And he's so perplexed, right? But this is such a helpful way to think about hospitality in our lives. Because I think we have a tendency to think about this concept as practicing it deliberately, where our idea is confined to well-made tables and clean houses and slow-cooked meals. And it can and should be those things, don't get me wrong. The point, though, is that Tony's story hints at how shared space with others might be created by playful moments and unplanned meetings and spontaneous, joyful outbursts. And in Luke's tale, it's the same. This structure of this story, for all of its theological layers and significance, the structure of the story hangs on the premise that Jesus just approached some guys walking and walked with them, which sparks my imagination to think of all the places that I practice hospitality on the road. In passing conversations with people about shared memories that or shared memories of places that we've both been or about struggles that we've gone through as parents or about some pain or issue that we've faced. Think about all the short-term contracts that you've negotiated in your life. You're with somebody for just a moment. In the kinds of relationships and connections measured in weeks or hours or even minutes instead of years. And how these reveal a hitchhiker's guide to hospitality how opportunities to share joy and connection even imagine the resurrection of hope and the sense of someone's humanity, how these things show up where we least expect them and where we don't often recognize them. Now, in Luke's story, Jesus walks up to these two friends and asks them what they're talking about. And the text says that the two friends are clearly having a hard time. They stop walking 
and their faces fall. It's almost like Jesus has triggered them with his question and maybe some tears start to fall and one of them asks Jesus, don't you know what's been happening? And I love this image of Jesus. Jesus is like, what? He has no idea apparently. And these two travelers unload on Jesus and tell Jesus about Jesus how he was this leader and how he had stirred up hope and how religious leaders betrayed and killed him and how much they believed that Jesus would be the one to change all this. And what's interesting, there's this hint in verse 21 that like good followers of Jesus, they remembered him saying that he would return and rise in three days and they had waited for three days to no avail. And now that morning, there's rumors swirling that his body is missing, and they don't know what to think, and they don't know what to believe, they don't know what to do, and you can almost hear them getting more and more upset. And Jesus stops them in the text and says, wait, you're missing something. Think about it. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what had been said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And again, this is how Luke shapes the story to make his claims about Jesus crystal clear. He's got Jesus explaining again on the other side of death how God's great story has held together through centuries and now it's coming to life in new ways. But to do this, Luke is using a super effective literary function that we are familiar with in the modern world. And it's called dramatic irony which just refers to when a reader or an audience knows something that some character in the story doesn't know. Whereas a spectator, you know more than your favorite character does. And this is super common, right? Like in the Truman Show, ancient film, Jim Carrey's character doesn't know that his entire life is a performance that's being filmed. Or like in the Titanic, when we all know that there's an iceberg, and we all know that there was a ship that hit it, and we all know that that ship's going to sink, we all know that lots of people are going to die, and we're still going to sit there for three hours and listen to Celine Dion sing about it, right? It makes sense. This is a common device. What's interesting is how there's actually two layers of dramatic irony happening here. First, we know as readers that Jesus is the strange traveler. We're sitting there, we're like, yeah, that's him, that's him. He's right there. And to be honest, I kind of think this is why some people really love this story. There's some suspense built in. We want to see what happens. But there's a second layer too. And I think it's one that helps us direct our attempts to be hospitable. See, yes, we know that Jesus is the strange traveler. But then too, Jesus knows what's got his friends tied up in knots. When Jesus asks them, hey, what's going on? You guys, you guys seem a little off, you seem upset. What are, you guys, what are you guys talking about? Jesus knows the answer to that question. The story implies that he knows it, and it's not because he's a superhero. No. How could he not know? These were his friends. He may have seen them in his trial and in his execution. He knew what they'd gone through. And yet he still asks them. And with his curiosity, he makes room for them to bear their hearts and to be honest and to process and to start healing. And that sounds so provocative and familiar for me. Because the truth is that you and I practice hospitality for people all the time where there's a bit of dramatic irony at play, I think, right? I mean, you know 
what's happened to that other person. You know the choices that they've made that haven't turned out. Even when they haven't told you, you can sense that that person is hurting or they're grieving or their life is pulling apart at the seams. And sometimes the quickest and the simplest way to make room for someone is to just ask, even when you think you know. To move past our fear that the conversation might take longer than we want, or that we might have to carry some emotional weight for a few moments, and it definitely demands that we suspend our assumptions about what is troubling them. And in that moment, we let curiosity be the force that makes room for them to see themselves and describe themselves and share themselves. Because just like in Luke's gospel, where Jesus' teaching about resurrection couldn't come to these friends until they'd opened up about their pain and articulated how many pieces their dreams had been shattered into, I think sometimes our assumptions about others and our feeling that we know what they're going through short-circuits the curiosity in us. Curiosity that has the power to make room for the grief and the honesty and the self-discovery that they need. And this is curiosity, I think, that we learn from Jesus. Now, we come now to the business end of this story and also to this series of conversations we've been having. And the text says this. It says that as the three approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go further. And they urged him strongly. They said, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So Jesus went in to stay with them. And here we see the dramatic irony that we've just described come to its highest point of tension. Jesus pretends like he's going to keep going. And the NIV adds the adjective strongly here in English because the Greek verb for what these friends do implies more pressure than just a simple, hey, come in, get some drinks with us. The language is that they prevailed on him to stay. They pulled him into the home. And I've got to be honest, this is where this whole idea of hospitality really seems to focus for me. Because there's an underlying assumption and implication in most conversations about hospitality and making room for others, and it's one that I'm not always comfortable with. See, I think we have a tendency to think of hospitality from the place of being the host. And consequently, we read these texts and think about making room, and hopefully we do sense the spirit stirring in us and how we're stretching how we think about hosting and who we dare to host. But the catch is, and this dawned on me a few years ago, my practice of hospitality isn't limited to how good a host I am. It's also measured in how I practice being someone's guest. I mean, I'm introverted like some of you here in the room, and I like my space, and I like my time, and I like them my way, but I don't mind sharing them from time to time. And I read texts like this, and I see Jesus making room for others, and I generally can agree that this is what the world needs more of. But all the while, I subtly measure hospitality from a place of control, and a place where I'm the one offering it, and I'm the one extending it, and I'm the one attempting it. And at least in part, this story hints at how the power of resurrection and the power of hospitality could only be revealed in Jesus choosing to be these people's guest. In him yielding to their earnest requests that he join them. 
And I think in my choice to accept the invitations being offered to me. And if I'm honest, I struggle with this side of hospitality. See, when I'm the host, I'm the one that's generous and I'm situated and I feel at home wherever that might be. When I'm the guest, I'm in need or I'm displaced or I'm in someone else's space. And this gets super practical when we start asking ourselves, what invitations have I received recently? Maybe from someone in my life that clearly wants connection and I've dodged them a little. And to be clear, I'm not saying that you should lean into weird moments or people who don't feel safe. But what about people with a different perspective or opinion who just want to share their knowledge with you and you think you know what that knowledge is, so you avoid them? Or what about someone who is pushing for friendship and I keep my distance from them because I know that responding means that I'm going to have to enter that person's space and that person's time and that person's interests? And for me, this is as simple as naming, and I wasn't sure I wanted to name this today, but for some reason, I actually feel internal resistance to the kindness of the Muslim neighbors on my street because they are always asking our youngest daughter to come into their house and have tea. And I resist this for some reason, and I don't know why. I don't like that part of myself. And once we take stock of invitations, we start to realize that part of making room requires an effort to practice good guesting. And what does that look like? Well, in his book, A Guest of the world. Jeffrey Lockwood thinks about this, and he acknowledges that being a guest is a bit tricky. It's super simple, but it's difficult sometimes too. And he suggests that, quote, one begins by demanding nothing more than the bare elements of life and dignity, which every host is more than delighted to exceed. Which got me thinking about how I could make room for others by simply asking people to offer me the basics. Things like a little time, little eye contact, some laughter, some conversation, regardless of how awkward it is. And I started to think about how people offer this to me all the time. On the bus and in a line, in a service call. And then also I experienced it in my interactions with neighbors and quirky friends and daily with my family. And then Lockwood writes, the good guest then simply allows the other person to be a good host to share his gifts, to play her music, to tell his stories, to show her places, to serve his foods. And I love the implication there that someone's capacity to be a host can be tied to my good guesting, my openness to them sharing, my openness to their interests, my openness to the smallest details of their experience in whatever way where our good guesting allows people to curate their life or story in a way they may never have had a chance to before. And then Lockwood concludes, finally, a guest should cultivate and express genuine gratitude. It need not be effusive or exorbitant, only sincere. And if you know Luke's gospel well, then that statement, I think, should pique your interest. Because the text that we're in says that Jesus accepted the invitation of the travelers and then, that when he was at the table with them, he took bread, presumably their bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. 
And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And it's in these few lines, scholars believe that Luke is using Eucharist language and imagery common to the earliest Christian communities. Like how on the night of his betrayal, Jesus took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his friends. But here, Jesus does something similar not as teacher and Messiah, not as the one in control or not as the benevolent host, but he does so as a guest. Where with narrative flair, Luke illustrates how it's in a callback to shared bread and blessing of the Last Supper. That's how these disciples start to see that resurrection was really true. And they started to see what it really looked like. Which, with hospitality as our lens, is truth that finds its way to us when we, like Jesus in this story, we find courage to make room for others' invitations. And how in our halting efforts to be good guests, others' stories and gifts and meanings end up being shared. Everyday lives and bodies and experiences that set a table a table of fellowship that as you accept others wholeheartedly and you give thanks for them sincerely, right there, with your Eucharistic gift to them, that's where the divine appears in plain sight. Taking who they are and what they bring to the world, blessing it all and making room for it helping all things to be made new. Which is the hope we carry as we become people who find a home in these stories. This is the hope that fills us with a warmth and with a hospitable heart that can be found and given to those on the roads we travel. As we discover those who are far from safety or those who are seeking kindness in unexpected places, we meet people like this every day. But also I think there's hope here for those of us who might feel far from sacred text and story, far from the center of what might be best in our own experience, where maybe you sit here today and you can begin to allow that perhaps Jesus might ever and always be coming beside you on your journey bringing no judgment or dramatic irony as he comes, but simply falling in with you, whatever your pace, and in the care that you then take and the gentle curiosity that you offer to others, Jesus grants each of us the grace to keep going. Grace that in turn, each of us can offer as willing hosts and good guests to those we meet. Let's pray. Loving God, host of the table where we are all welcome. You are too the breaker of bread that feeds us and the giver of thanks that brings blessing to all. We ask that you would hold us now. And if we find ourselves in a space where maybe we have strayed from your welcome or we've come to a place where we think that maybe we've overstayed your grace. Let us sense that you are making room for us now. And we ask that you would give us a sense 
of how we can be ambassadors of this great hospitality that you offer out on the roads that we travel and in our guesting and in our faithful curiosity that we give to others. Let your audacious invitation and blessing of it all find its way to those that we know and those that we love and those that we struggle to care for well. Learning to trust the image that we see in Jesus, that you really do make room for all, and working to make that truth real for all. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our host and our hope. Amen.